Good morning, everyone. I greet you in Jesus' name. I've uh, enjoyed, appreciated, and been blessed by the the songs this morning that we sang and the scripture that was read. And <clears throat> I feel it is uh, it is uh, very fitting in relation to council meeting. And I thought of the same thing that Milo did. That uh, so. <clears throat> Yeah, I've come to council meetings with uh, not feeling at peace in my heart. And so, to begin with, I would like to uh, just continue that theme a little bit and uh, would like to call attention to, uh, well, just, you know, that we're here to examine ourselves, as it says in Corinthians, 1 Corinthians 11, but let a man examine himself. But God wants us to remember this, too, from 2 Corinthians 4, verse 7. But we have this treasure in earthen vessels, that the excellence of the power may be of God and not of us. God knows what we're made of. Uh, He knew how his disciples struggled. Peter, even with the best intentions, denied Jesus. And God knows how frail and weak we are in this mortal clay, our flesh. And God, by his spirit, can deliver us and um, save us and can continue the work of sanctification that the excellence of the power may be of God and not of us. And then, in addition, we're taught in Romans, there is therefore now... No condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus, who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. And God's mercy and provisions are great to the repentant one. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And that is where we find peace. And... uh, This great mercy doesn't give us room to live carelessly, to excuse ourselves. Uh, God knows our intentions and desires and uh, our disappointments and our griefs at our shortcomings and failures and sins. And I think of that lady that uh, was caught in adultery. And after Jesus rose to his feet, the Pharisees, the self-righteous Pharisees had all left. He said to her, neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. So with that in mind, let's turn to uh, Mark chapter 11. for the context of our message here this morning. Mark chapter 11, I'm reading from the New King James. I want to think particularly about the cleansing of the temple this morning, which this chapter tells about, but I'll read more... uh, around that for context. It's a familiar story. 
beginning at verse 1 in Mark 11. Now when they drew near Jerusalem to Bethphage and Bethany at the Mount of Olives, he sent two of his disciples, and he said to them, Go into the village opposite you, and as soon as you have entered it, you will find a colt tied on which no one has sat. Loose it and bring it. And if anyone says to you, Why are you doing this? Say, The Lord has need of it, and immediately he will send it here. So they went their way and found the colt tied by the door outside on the street, and they loosed it. But some of those who stood there said to, said to them, What are you doing, loosing the colt? And they spoke to him just as Jesus had commanded, so they let, it, let them go. Then they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their clothes on it, and he sat on it. And many spread their clothes on the road, and others cut down leafy branches from the trees and spread them on the road. And then those who went before and those who followed cried out, saying, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the kingdom of our father David that comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And Jesus went into, into Jerusalem and into the temple. And when he had looked around at all the things, as the hour was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. Now the next day, when they had come from Bethany, he was hungry, and seeing from afar a fig tree having leaves, he went to see if perhaps he would find something on it. When he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for figs. In response, Jesus said to it, Let no one eat fruit from you ever again. And his disciples heard it. <clears throat> so they came to Jerusalem. And then Jesus went into the temple and began to drive out those who bought and sold in the temple and overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold doves. And he would not allow anyone to carry wares through the temple. And then he taught them, taught, saying to them, Is it not written, My house shall be called a house of prayer for all nations? But you have made it a den of thieves. And the scribes and chief priests heard it and sought how they might destroy him. For they feared him, because all the people were astonished at his teaching. When evening had come, he went out of the city. I think I'll, I'll stop there. <clears throat> Jesus was coming into Jerusalem riding the donkey, accompanied by an adoring crowd, uh, carpeting the road ahead of him with their outer garments and with branches from trees and possibly uh, grasses from the roadside fields, and they were shouting adoration and praises. Hosanna. And in Luke, it says, in Luke's account in chapter 19, it says that as he was drawing near the Mount uh, of Olives, uh, the people were rejoicing. Um, I'm sorry, I got lost there a little bit. I think Luke is saying basically the same thing. But Matthew's account adds that the children were crying out in the temple, Hosanna to the son of David. 
So there was a lot of adoration and praise and excitement and enthusiasm and support for Jesus. But not all were adoring him. So the chief priests and the scribes and the Pharisees, they were fiercely opposed. Already along the road into the city, uh, in Luke 19, it says that Pharisees in the crowd called out to Jesus, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. Tell them to shut up, was basically what they were saying. And in the temple, when they heard the praises, and they saw Jesus healing the lame and the blind to the glory of God. They were indignant. They were upset. They were sore displeased, the King James says. When Jesus declared that the Jews had made the temple, the house of prayer, into a den of thieves, they plotted to destroy him. They were afraid of Jesus. They were afraid of his power and of how influential he was among the people. And when we read this story and we read the Gospels, it's easy for us to identify the bad guys in these accounts. They're so obviously selfish and proud and hateful. And they're so widely missing the heart of God, so seriously on the wrong side of what's right and good, and they're opposing God and God's program at every turn. They weren't loyal to God. They didn't love God. They didn't obey God. They were devoted to themselves. It's pretty obvious. Their words and actions showed it. They were thieves. And they had turned the temple into a den of thieves. And all the while, they were posturing that they were the chosen and devoted people of God. So here's what was going on there at the temple. Pilgrims from a distance needed sacrificial animals, sheep and oxen and doves and so forth. And the high priest, at this time, the high priest Anna's family uh, were doing the, buy, the selling. And uh, this provided them an opportunity for unholy prophets. And uh, right in the outer court of the Gentiles, right in the temple. And it was called, with some sarcasm, the bazaars of Annas, the markets of Annas. And so with them were the money changers who, that exchanged the uh, foreign currency for kosher shekels for offerings and charging an exorbitant fee for their service. And all this was happening out there in the court of the Gentiles. There were stalls even for animals. I wonder if it didn't sound like um, Monday at the stockyard over there, if you've ever been to the dump on Monday right next to the stockyard. The temple, God's house, had become a den of thieves, said Jesus. They tolerated thieves, and the thieves diminished the glory and the honor and the reverence due to this place, this place that was to be a house of prayer, 
was instead filled with selfishness and greed. And it was a grief to Jesus. In, uh, as he approached the city and gazed on the city and the temple was obvious there, it says in Luke 19 that he wept. He knew the hardness of their hearts. He came to his own and his own did, did not receive him, John 1.11. And he knew the judgment that was coming upon Jerusalem. And here's here's the point that we're getting to, that if we look at the characteristics of these Jews and honestly consider ourselves, which we need to do at times, sometimes we see faint uh, similarities. We're, We're not where they were, we are on God's side. And I say that sincerely. And, uh, but even as converted people, they weren't. Even as converted people, as disciples of Jesus, we can struggle with that old nature and the different ways that it can raise its head and manifest itself. It's when we yield and give the, the self, that old nature, uh, place to rule instead of living in the spirit. That is when we can grieve the spirit of God. And the same way that Jesus wept over Jerusalem. So what did Jesus do when he came into the temple? He cleansed the temple. And he drove out those who bought and sold, and he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold doves, and he would not allow anyone to carry wares through the temple. There was actually, it was actually used, the outer court was used as a shortcut from one part of the city to the other, just going through the temple. So people not coming to worship we're just carrying things through there and whatnot. It was just a, like a little thoroughfare. And they went around. It was, took, took them longer. But obviously, God desires to cleanse our temples, to clean us up, and to have us be a house of prayer, a temple devoted and set apart for God's service, and God's glory. So I have uh, half a dozen little tests that we can look at. We could call them maybe diagnostic tests. Uh, Schools use diagnostic tests for academic placement, and uh, Tyler knows about diagnostics for cars. But uh, we we do uh, diagnostics on ourselves with, with God's Spirit. And God, God does not want to batter us in, in doing these things. He wants us to, if we're cars, to run more smoothly and to have more power. And in the case of being Christians, to uh, have more peace and have more victory and be more effective in his service. So these uh, diagnostics, uh, they're not complete uh, they just focus on little uh, pieces of, of what all's involved. 
but let's look at several here. Uh, the first one is a love test, a love for God. And we know that that's part A, love, part A, a love for God. And we know uh, we're familiar with the first and the second commandments. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the first and great commandment. And yesterday while I was working on this uh, message, a meditation from Tozer's book, Renewed Day by Day, popped up in my inbox, and this is what it said. The gravest question any of us face is whether we do or do not Love the Lord. Too much hinges on the answer to pass the matter off lightly. And it is a question that no one can answer for another. This is still Tozer. Not even the Bible can tell the individual man that he loves the Lord. It can only tell him how he can know whether or not he does. It can and does tell us how to test our hearts for love. Our Lord told his disciples that love and obedience were organically united, that the keeping of his sayings would prove that we love him. This is the true test of love, and we will be wise to face up to it. Tozer is right. Uh, You can read John 14 and read John 15. Uh, He who has my commandments and keeps them, it is he who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and manifest myself to him. And in 1 John 5, 2 2 and 3, By this we know that we love the children of God when we love God and keep his commandments. For this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments, and his commandments are not burdensome. So uh, the little saying came to mind, uh, he's not heavy, he's my brother. And I did a little research on that. In, In 1918, a mother abandoned her son Howard, crippled by polio at Boys Town. Some of you older folks may be. Remember Boys Town, a home for orphaned boys. And older boys would carry Howard up and down the steps because he couldn't navigate them himself. And once the director asked an older boy if it was hard carrying Howard around, and the boy responded, he ain't heavy, Father Flanagan. He's my brother. And, and that's the way we should be about keeping God's commandments and instructions, if we love him, they're not heavy. He's my savior. And we would add, and therefore our good. And God wants the best for us. So that's a question for us. How great is our love for God? Do we chafe at his commandments? Then love test part B is loving others. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. And these two are very, part A and B are very closely combined. It's easy to say, I love God. But our love for God is reflected in how we relate to people. 
to our brothers and sisters. Our attitudes toward others and how we relate to them reveals something about our love for God. So 1 John 4, verse 20 says, If someone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen, how can he love God whom he has not seen? And this commandment we have from him, that he who loves God must love his brother also. And that is where... That is where our love for God is lived out in the real world where we live with people. We work with them. We play with them. We buy and sell things from them, with them. They are parents. They are children. They're teachers and students and wives and husbands. There are many, many, many different kinds of relationships. And how they work, how we get along with them says something about our love for God and the other way around. So 1 Corinthians 13, love suffers long and is kind. Love does not envy. Love does not parade itself, is not puffed up, does not behave rudely, does not seek its own, is not provoked, thinks no evil, does not rejoice in iniquity, but rejoices in the truth, bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. How we live that out shows something about our love for God. Love does no harm to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfillment of the law, Romans 13, 10. So the question that often comes to me uh, is how does my love match up with how God describes what love is and and what real love is in relation to other people? What does it reveal about my love for God? So the other diagnostics that we'll look at briefly actually all come under love also, but they are specific areas. So number three Uh, is a humility test. So uh, Jesus came riding a donkey into the city of Jerusalem. And Zechariah said that he came lowly. And Jesus was lowly and humble in his life here, even though he was king and creator of the universe. And we are to be lowly. But but, uh, our old self has a tendency to be prideful. And sometimes in the temple there were trumpets. Trumpets in the temple. So Jesus taught in the Sermon on the Mount that good deeds, even good deeds, can be done proudly. Take heed that you do not do your charitable deeds before men to be seen by them. That is not why we do good deeds. Do not sound a trumpet before you as the hypocrites do in the synagogues, that they may have glory and approval from men and so forth but do it quietly. We remember the story. Jesus 
sitting in the temple with the disciples, watching people come and doing their alms, and how the wealthy came. It doesn't say they were proud. It doesn't say they blew trumpets, but it was pretty obvious they were putting in large offerings. And this widow came quietly and dropped in her last two mites, humbly. And when you pray, he says, don't be like the hypocrites. They pray standing in the synagogues and so forth. And when you fast, don't do it like the hypocrites, making it very obvious and so on. Pride is the enemy of Christ-like humility, and it shows up in so many ways. Uh, The disciples struggled with pride. Uh, Who's the greatest? Who can sit beside Jesus? Pride brings the sting of envy and jealousy. It can be behind the burning of many resentments and anger. By pride comes nothing but strife, Proverbs 13.10. So I thought about the parable that Jesus told of the Pharisee and the publican, both in the temple, both in the temple, but the Pharisee, we remember, was very self-aware, self-composed, and we can easily see he was self-righteous and boastful, and arrogant. The publican was self-aware too, but he was most aware of God, and he had, and how holy God is, and how unholy he was, he had no confidence in himself, and he was beating his breast in grief at his unworthiness, before God and pleading for mercy. God resists the proud but gives grace to the humble. He lifts up the humble and Christian humility before God puts us in a place of strength and assurance and peace. Then there's a mercy test. Jesus said in Luke 6, 36, therefore be merciful just as your Father also is merciful. Judge not, and you shall not be judged. Condemn not, and you shall not be condemned. Forgive, and you will be forgiven. And a few verses down, verse 41. And why do you look at the speck in your brother's eye, but do not perceive the plank in your own eye? We know how those verses go. So Martha and I uh, are part of a circle letter, uh, a group of friends who served together years ago at Poplar Hill. And the pack of letters arrived at our house just a few days ago. And Paul Miller from Kansas, uh, Rich knows him and Esther. Um, He had written in his letter that he had gotten impatient that this pack of letters hadn't come to his place sooner. It was a long time coming. And he wondered who was sitting on it and not caring that other people are waiting and not getting their letter written and getting it in the mail. 
And when it finally came to his place, he found out why. James, James Stutzman's uh, had the letters just before Paul. And we were just before James. And we had mailed our letters uh, and the packet to James's on September 28, 2020, over a year ago. And unbeknownst to us, James's had moved from Tennessee to Indiana. And for some reason, the uh, letters, their mail was not being forwarded to their Indiana address the way it was supposed to be. And they didn't get it until this past January, uh, over three months later. That's what was going on. But the reason I'm telling you this is uh, because of Paul's complaining. And I know he wouldn't mind me sharing this. But in addition to confessing his critical, his critical complaints, Paul wrote, Oh, that I could think first thoughts of charity instead of criticism. And I understand where Paul Miller is coming from. I sometimes have the same problem. It's, it's a tendency of man. And if we had a mercy justice meter that would, uh, would uh, with one side, show mercy, it had a meter, I mean a, a, a needle, on one side is mercy, on the other side is justice. And it swung back and forth or was in the middle if we were perfectly balanced and so on. Uh, what would it show about us? Which characteristic would be stronger when we were thinking about other people, when we're thinking about ourselves? It's easy to, to have that meter, that, that needle to swing over to the justice side, and we feel critical if it's about other people's failures. But then when we come, when we think of our own, we can... Uh, we can rationalize and, and excuse and kind of overlook our own blunders, and it's leaning pretty hard on the mercy side. But we really, I think Jesus would want us to be uh, more uh, concerned about ourselves and harder on ourselves than we can tend to be on others. Therefore, be merciful, just as your Father also is merciful. Then I have a maintenance test. I'll rush through these here quickly. So Jesus cleansed the temple. He forgives sin. He brings deliverance. What do we do with it? In the process of sanctification, he leaves some decisions to us. And sometimes Christians don't clear everything out. And perhaps through carelessness or indifference, um, thieves remain unidentified and undealt with. Sometimes Christians allow thieves back in. So, uh, Jesus taught that it's not what a man eats, what goes into his stomach that defiles him, but what comes out of his heart. So really, it's the condition of the heart that defiles him. So we need to take care of our hearts. 
And the unconverted heart is already bent towards sin, and it's desperately wicked. And if he feeds his heart evil, it will bring evil influences that inflame and strengthen sinful appetites that are already there. But a converted heart devoted to God and fed on the things of God has great potential to flourish and mature and bear good fruit. Finally, brethren, whatsoever things are true and whatsoever things are noble. And yes, God is faithful. Uh, May the God of peace himself sanctify you completely. And may your whole spirit, soul, and body be preserved blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus. He who calls you is faithful, who will also do it. But we have our part to play, to cooperate with God and to make godly choices and to have godly priorities, saying yes to God. And then the last one is the prayer test. Uh, Is, are we a house of prayer? And Jesus wasn't just saying in the temple, let's be quiet in church. Let's get rid of these things. But he intended for it to be a place where people met him. And needy people, blind people, crippled people were coming to Jesus after he had driven those those marketers out for healing blind people and uh, lame people. As many as touched him were healed. And so when we come to Jesus... um, humbly and repentantly, we touch him, we find healing for our heart and soul. We commune with God, we read the Bible, we pray, we express praise and adoration and worship, and we believe, and we pray in faith, Uh, help thou mine unbelief, like the anguished father cried to Jesus. And we seek, we ask and seek and knock and pray for the Holy Spirit, pray for God's work in our heart, in our lives, that we can be mature. We pray the prayer of the publican, have mercy on me, a sinner. Hosanna, save me, Savior. There's confession and repentance and recommitments, petitions, intercession for others. Our thoughts go easily to God. And concerns that we feel don't just register as something troubling, but we lift them to God in prayer. And we respond to the beauty of nature with worship. Are we a house of prayer? So we've looked at love tests, part A and B, love for God, love for others, humility and mercy and maintenance, and prayer. Am I a house of prayer and communion with God? And we have this treasure in earthen vessels. God can work in us, and there is no uh, condemnation. I could have, uh, I run over here just a few minutes, Milo, forgive me. There's a forgiveness test, and you've had a little patience test here. I'm running over Thank you for your patience, and may God, um, may Jesus reign triumphantly in our hearts.